This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. In the film The Zone of Interest, a German couple and their family make a bucolic life for themselves in a well-appointed house with a lush garden. But just over the garden wall lies the Auschwitz concentration camp. The father is one of the chief architects of the Holocaust. And over the course of the film, he and his wife attempt to preserve their deeply compartmentalized lives. But the horrors taking place outside their children's bedrooms refuse to be held at bay. The film has received praise and it's favored to pick up a Best Picture nomination at the Oscars. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon. And today we're talking about the zone of interest on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Here with me in Aisha today is Andrew Lapin. He's a senior reporter for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency and the host of the podcast Radioactive, The Father Coughlin Story. Welcome to the show, Andrew. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. Okay, so the zone of interest takes its name from the German term for the 40-kilometer area surrounding the Auschwitz concentration camp, where more than one million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. The film takes place in and around the Commandant's Quarters, a large house and extensive garden that abutted the camp, separated only by a high brick wall. We watch the commandant of the camp, Rudolf, played by Christian Fiedel, go about his day, attending to the mundane logistical details of one of history's greatest evils. We also watch his wife, Hedwig, played by Sandra Huller, run the household, staffed largely by Auschwitz prisoners, and proudly show off the garden she worked so hard to build. The film never directly depicts the cruelty and murder taking place just over the garden wall, but it leeches into the lives of the family's five children anyway. The screams of the victims and the smoke from the ovens infiltrate their dreams and start to affect how they behave with one another. 
The movie was written and directed by Jonathan Glazer, who previously wrote and directed the films Sexy Beast, Birth and Under the Skin. The zone of interest is in theaters now. Andrew, I want to start with you because I know you feel strongly about this film's approach, something it gets right that other films about Nazis and the Holocaust tend to miss. Say more about that. Yeah. So uh, one side effect of working as a Jewish journalist and growing up in a Jewish household is I've seen a lot of Holocaust movies, um, more than I would probably advise most people should have to watch. And even the best of them really struggle with this question of how to depict the Nazis, like the fact of the Nazis and and, and the fact that they existed and bureaucratized their genocide process. Mm -hmm. So what I thought was so extraordinary about this film, right from the opening, I could tell it was a Holocaust movie I had not seen before. Mm -hmm. As you described the depiction of this sort of idyllic, you know, family kind of just living their lives. And then the slow reveal that what we're actually seeing is the Auschwitz commandant and the ways in which they are actively compartmentalizing and ignoring the genocide that they are aiding Mm -hmm. really struck a chord with me. There's a lot of scholarship, a lot of philosophy around this idea that to depict the Nazis and the Holocaust as somehow like an alien or, or unique period in history ignores the truth that the capacity for evil exists in all of us. And I think this right. movie is really interested in getting at that core issue. Uh, this genocide is happening right there, and they're choosing not to see it. Talk about a depiction of, like, somebody who has been so thoroughly dehumanized that they're no longer recognized as human. This movie, I think, really gets at that idea and gets at it in, in a really powerful way. It's about negative space. It's about the absence of feeling where normally you would expect to have some sort of human empathy or human reaction. And so I think Jonathan Glazer, I'm going to make a bad pun here, but I think he and his filmmaking team really got under the skin of (laughs) what it means uh, to live this way. And and I really commend it for that. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Aisha, did it get under your skin? Yeah. I mean, I love what you said, Andrew, about this active choice not to see it and how and how this movie is really trying to point a finger, I think, very clearly at everyone in the audience. I think especially Jonathan Glazer could not have planned for this, but we are currently watching and seeing things happening in the Middle East right now. And there's this concern that too many people are like going about their lives and, and kind of ignoring it. Now, granted, it is easier to do that if you mm-hmm. are thousands of miles away as opposed to this being in your mm-hmm. backyard the way this is. But I do think it kind of it feels very of this moment. And I liked that about this film. And like Andrew said, has there ever been a movie made like this where you don't actually see the violence? It's just kind of in the background, but you can yeah. hear it. The sound design here is just like fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a great early scene where we see Hedwig, the wife, like putting on her lipstick in front of her mirror in her bedroom. And then I don't know if it's the first time we hear it, but it's one of the first times we hear just like these distant screams in the background. And I was like, what? Yeah. If you've listened to me long enough, you know that I try to usually go into movies completely without any sense of like what the premise is. And I went into this just knowing it was about the Holocaust, but that was mm-hmm. it. So I didn't know what I was getting into. Once I realized what was happening, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is different. I'm with it. I, if I have one critique and it's probably – It's a fairly big critique, but I feel like the effectiveness wore off after about 45 minutes. Hmm. So I guess for me, once the premise and the thesis had been made, I didn't feel as though much else happened afterward. And so I kind of wished that this would be 
more of a short film, you know, like a 45 minute baby an hour movie instead of, you know, mm. 106 minutes or however long this film is. It's a little under two hours. That's interesting. Okay. This was fascinating to me that kind of crawled inside my head and stayed there because it tested one of my most firmly held beliefs about narrative storytelling. Whenever I teach fiction, I try to drive home the fact that the closer your storytelling gets to topics that come prepackaged with emotional force, things like death and abuse and the danger to kids and animals and sexual violence and the Holocaust. I think your job as a writer is to understand and gauge that the closer you get to that thing, the more you have to back off and simply depict it as clearly mm. and as starkly as possible. Because if you don't and you treat it like any other topic and you ladle on your writerly stylistic ticks and flourishes on top of it, your readers going to feel pushed around. They're going to feel manipulated and they're going to start to resent you for stealing focus. Mm. Man, this film is a case study in exactly what I've been trying to tell people for years. <laughs> and yet I still struggled with it. Now, I'm supposed to struggle with this film. As you guys have mentioned, this film is made in this way, in this very stark, detached, forensic way for a very specific purpose, which is to implicate us. Fiction is an empathy engine. And we're depicting these characters, you know, caring so much about their home and their family and their little garden and their lives. That's not to create sympathy with them, but to force us to recognize an affinity with them, which is different. We're trying to establish, to suggest that their complicity could be ours very easily. Yes. And what I love about this film is it does more than that. Because when the film stays in that house and in that garden and we start to feel the horrors of the camps kind of creeping in, you know, the screams, the gunshots, the smoke, the score, which is mm. harrowing, and the sound design, as you mentioned, by Johnny Byrne. We're experiencing the horrors the way the kids are. And this has been done before in films. The film is capturing and sharing the perspective of the kids. Mm. But for me, I like that the film wasn't content to do just that. I think the film is most effective in depicting the, to coin a phrase, the banality of evil, the, the logistics of evil among the adults. So when the father listens to a presentation about how to make the ovens more efficient, when the mother tries on a mink coat that she's taken from one of the prisoners, when the father takes his kids to the river and gets confronted by the tiniest amount of blowback, like the one one millionth of the violence he's enacting against an entire people, that's when it worked for me. I will tell you, though, and I, I've been trying to figure out why this is so. There is one point in this film that I don't think was on as firm ground, and that's a scene where the father, the commandant of the camp, is up on horseback as all around him uh, on the ground, prisoners are being tortured and murdered, and we hear it happening. The camera is on the ground, too. We, the viewer, are among all this violence and death, but the camera is gazing up at him from the ground, and it doesn't leave him. Yeah. That's an instance of me where I felt the presence of Jonathan Glazier, the filmmaker – deliberately not showing me something, whereas in other parts, I felt like he was showing me what mattered. He was showing me their detachment. He was showing me their compartmentalization. And there he was making a choice not to tilt the camera like 15 degrees to depict something. Does that make sense to you guys? That's an interesting point. And I think, Glenn, both you and Aisha, you're saying similar things in the sense of what the film is choosing to show us, the patterns, the repetitions of the images. I can only speak to the reason why these moments work for me is, you know, Glenn, mm -hmm. you're describing a moment that repeats in some ways later in the film in that the carefully constructed sense of reality around this family is suddenly broken by uh, the sudden intrusion of right. a horrific sound or um, a distorted image. And we don't want to get into too much what happens later. But those moments really helped me stay with the film and what it was trying to say. It's clearly set this sort of moral boundary, which I think is a very commendable one, which is to not show the actual 
images of the torture and death. These are images that have become, frankly, overplayed in pop culture and have lost a lot of their potency and significance. Mm -hmm. And so I think this was the right choice to simply not show them. However, he also can't ignore them and he can't allow us to ignore them. And so these little moments where the sound design is as intense as you're talking about. And we should also speak to composer Mika Levy's score, which is just Mm -hmm. incredible work. I just some of the most astounding music I've ever heard in a film in the last few years. These moments are where we feel some semblance of morality kind of at the edges of this story that is poking its way in, is not letting us forget what we're actually watching. That was my interpretation anyway. Mm -hmm. To your point about the camera looking up at him, like I... I'm curious, Glenn, like, did you feel as though, I know you're not quite sure what he was trying to say there, but I think often when we have a tilted camera looking up at someone directly, it can mean a lot of things, but like oftentimes it could mean, you know, we, the viewer, are kind of the subjugated or we're we're kind of looking Mm -hmm. up at this person who is supposed to sort of tower over us. Like, I, I did wonder if that was about putting us instead of like in the position of sort of observing or like the implication that we talked about earlier was that a moment where we're supposed to kind of feel like the lower people, the people who are being subjugated. I'm struggling with it. And I think it's one moment when the, I noticed the filmmaking, which is weird to say, because of course this is, this film is all about the filmmaking. It's all about long shots and wide shots and uh, those things which seem to be dream sequences, which may or may not be depending on your interpretation. But this gets to some of the negative criticism of this film And I think it's important to point out that what I've seen, the negative criticism this film has received is not for its craft, but for its approach. Exactly what we're talking about here. Manola Dargis's review in the New York Times, pretty typical of this kind of criticism. I think she makes it pretty clear to me, at least, that she understands the choices that Glazer makes. And she even understands what effects they have. Like, I think she got the film. Yeah. But she calls it vacuous. She calls it a hollow, self-aggrandizing art film exercise. She suggests later on that its very decision to depict such extreme compartmentalization falls victim to it. So in her mind, Glazer's techniques for creating detachment and distance, those long takes, those wide shots, very few close-ups in this film. Mm. The decision actually to background, to literally background the prisoners in the mass slaughter is something that has the knock-on effect of foregrounding, not the horror, but the filmmaker and his aesthetic sense. Yeah. And then she goes, for me, a little bit further than maybe, but, but, than I would, by saying it's telegraphs to viewers that he, this isn't like those other Holocaust films, uh, Andrew, where, where the Nazis are mustache-twirling <laughs> cartoon villains. I wanted to give you both a chance to respond to that. <laughs> I suppose I fell into that trap because uh, that is my reading of the film is that it's not like other Holocaust films and, and more power to it for that. <laughs> One thing I would say in response to um, Dargis's criticisms is that throughout the film, and I, and I watched it a second time, last night expecting it would be a very hard second watch. But in fact, I was enthralled because there is so much visual information packed into every shot of this movie. And so, yes, it's not showing the camps, but it's showing a lot of other things. It's showing the wait staff Mm -hmm. who are running around doing these banal errands for uh, Hedwig and living in constant terror that they're going to be sent to the camps. You see, you know, the boots being washed by a prisoner. You see there's this visual motif of like the outdoor pool that they have and it has a shower Mm -hmm. head on it. Mm -hmm. And here's an example of where the film is not, it's not beating you over the head with this. Mm -hmm. It's just inviting you to consider that that there is also a shower head on the other side of that wall where the prisoners are being gassed with Zyklon B. It's just this that little moment, those, those kinds of things. Yeah. They don't linger on it. It's just inviting you to think about the sort of mirror image of complacency that, that this film 
creates. And uh, for me, it worked. Uh, that's all I can say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would go as far as Manola did, but I do understand that point of view. And I think I do kind of lean toward it just because what I find interesting about that critique is any movie I think that was going to take this approach was going to have that criticism wielded, sure. wielded against it. Like it feels inherent. So like, should should you not do this? Should we, like we already have all these other examples. And so I don't think it's necessarily fair to call it like it's trying to be different for the sake of being different. I think like this is a way to really approach this material that we are so familiar with in a different way. There's a way to think about this movie as sort of like similar to all of those horror movies where families are living on like native ancestral land and the the ancestors come, except this is like, this is happening now it's happening in the present. And instead of being on top of it, they are directly behind it and they are responsible. They are directly responsible for it. There could be another version of this movie where you do take something that's more in the vein of an actual horror movie or all the horror conventions, but that's not what it's trying to do. And I don't think it's, I wouldn't blame it for that. I feel like when you look at Jonathan Glazer's other work, there's a part of his films that is always making you aware of the filmmaking, right? Because it's very, it's very formally rigorous. Um, it's really, you know, he's telling stories with very stripped down elements to them. And and I like his other work, but here I felt like by taking those same kind of filmmaking principles, the sort of boldness of, you know, the stationary cameras and the long takes, and actually putting it towards something of a point, not that the other films didn't have a point, but that there was like clearly something he felt like he needed to say on the subject, and he was going to use all of his techniques at his disposal to do it, it really, for me, elevated the craft. And I could understand that the craft was making an argument, maybe a bit of a repetitive one, but one that felt unique to the medium of filmmaking and that felt modern, which, again, not to belabor the point, to make a Holocaust film in 2023 that feels modern and like to this moment, um, that in and of itself is is really a feat. Can I also just say to the point about the interactions between Hedwig and the servants, like there's a moment that like chilled me. And it is the moment where she gets upset with one of the servants and is like, I could have my husband spread your ashes along the fields. And like that sort of break that like momentary Mm -hmm. break of like, obviously she knows, like she knows what is going on. Like you can say they're ignoring it, but like it is never far from their mind what is happening Mm -hmm. both, you know, physically in terms of it being there, but also like they are completely, absolutely in on this 100%. And I think that to me, that little moment of breaking and the other little moments of breaking were like the rare moments I was able to latch on. And I felt like as though this movie was taking it a little bit further because that to me felt so real. It reminded me of the way just people can snap in those situations, people who may even think of themselves as good people, I don't think these characters do, but like they may think of themselves as good people, but then they will go to the lowest common denier. They will say the most racist thing or mm-hmm. the most sexist thing just to like make sure that whoever they're talking to knows they are the ones in charge. That moment for me was one of those moments where like I caught my breath and I was like, oh. This is intense, and this is what I wanted like a little bit more yeah. of. And both Friedel and Huller are superstars in Germany, and Huller specifically has said she never wanted to play a Nazi. Yeah. I'm so glad she did here because it's a moment like that that she delivers mm-hmm. that has all these layers of self-awareness, self-knowledge, and also the ability of abnegation, the ability to – I mean, this is what you were saying, Andrew. Like, this film has a form 
to serve its function, which is to highlight complicity, mm. than a systemic refusal to recognize or even acknowledge basic humanity in somebody else. And yeah. I'm not going to say that this is exactly Manola Dargis's point, but she kind of brushes up against it. But like, it amazes me in the year 2024 that we are still out here having to say depiction does not equal endorsement. Yeah, I was going to say that um, I feel like there are a lot of people out there who justifiably will avoid watching movies or dramatizations of historical atrocities, right? Because yeah. you don't want to see that kind of thing depicted there. You know, that that crosses the boundaries for a lot of people. And I totally get that. I totally get that impulse. Yeah. And I would also say, if you are one of those people, the zone of interest might work for you, specifically because it doesn't depict these things visually, but it still makes you aware of it. It places you in that space and time. And it's doing so, obviously, in, in a very careful way, a very, I, I think, sensitive way. So, you know, if it, it, for that reason, um, it does it does come at it a little bit differently. So, Andrew, we've hit on briefly the, the kind of modern relevance of this film, how it kind of touches on the modern day. Do you have any more thoughts on that? I mean, I would say um, mm -hmm. obviously it touches on, you know, the rise of anti-Semitism, which is something I'm covering on a daily basis. But in, in a broader sense, yeah. it's also very much an inquiry into the act of dehumanization. And, you know, we are living in this time where people, it seems, are increasingly seeing other people as mere inconveniences or obstacles rather than people that are fully worthy of life. And this is a film that is aware of that and is trying to interrogate that. That is also a reason why I feel like uh, it has something to say in this moment. Yep. I think we're going to be talking about this film again uh, come Oscar time. So tell us what you think about The Zone of Interest. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Aisha Harris, Andrew Lapin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and edited by Mike Katsuf. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.